This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. What we have in James is definitely, may I even say definitively, the very first book of the New Testament. Why do I say so? Because in the epistle of James, you don't find a word or a hint about Gentile Christians. We are only talking about Jewish Christians. Why do I know all that? Well, let's put a few dates down. Jesus died and rose from the dead in the year 30. And then, approximately the year 35, Paul went to Damascus, converted at the gates of Damascus, stayed three years in the desert, 38, returned to Jerusalem after having been led down over the wall because the governor of the Damascenes was after him. And then Paul comes to Jerusalem. And let's be honest, Paul was a firebrand. He goes right into these synagogues of Greek-speaking Jews and he is telling them that Jesus is the Son of God. And yes, you must believe. And the Christians there say, what a firebrand. Let's take him aboard ship at Joppa and send him on to his hometown Tarsus. Let him cool off a little bit. The year 38. The next chapter in the book of Acts, we read, still chapter 9 really, but then going on to chapter 10, Peter going down to Joppa. And in chapter 10, he is on the roof, the flat roof of Simon the Tanner. And he has his vision of a sheep coming down with animals. And then the Holy Spirit says, go down and you will meet three men. Yes, they are there. One of them is a Roman soldier. Think for just a moment. What were, were the headlines in the paper? What did Peter Jennings talk about at 5.30 evening news? The tension between Rome and Jerusalem was so Think you could cut it with a knife. And what was the tension? The emperor happened to be Caligula, Gaius Caligula, who in the year 37 became emperor. And by the way, he was the best friend of Herod Agrippa I, who killed James and who put uh, Peter in prison. There was collusion there. Now Herod grew up in Rome and knew Caligula. Caligula became emperor and then had a sickness and became demented 
And then Philo, the Jew of Alexandria, Egypt, came to Rome to ask Caesar to be gracious to the Jewish people in Alexandria, Egypt. And Gaius Caligula became angry and said, Not so. And he sent him home and he said, I decree that a statue of mine should be set, erected in the temple area of Jerusalem and that any and every Jew entering that temple area has to bow down to me first. Now you can imagine the tension. And Peter, the head of the church in Jerusalem, Peter goes down to Joppa and is on the rooftop and then has that vision and then goes down because the Holy Spirit tells him so and there are three men, Gentiles, and one of them is a Roman soldier. And now Peter has to say, (laughs) well, the Holy Spirit said to go with you. So, he has to invite these men into the house and eat with them, which was an absolute no-no for a Jew. But he had seen that vision of the sheet coming down. Peter, kill and eat. So, Peter entertains these men. And then the next morning, they set out on foot. And then they come to Caesarea, to the house of a Roman centurion. And you can imagine that Tension. Roman centurion. Entering the house and staying with the Roman centurion for a couple of days and preaching the gospel. It's about the year 39. Now, then the Gentiles in the year 39 entered the Christian church. And Peter returns to Jerusalem, chapter 11 of the book of Acts. And he's called on the carpet. Where have you been, Peter? And Peter has to choose his words very carefully. And he says, well, the Holy Spirit told me. And so I went. And this is the result. And he doesn't even use the title of Cornelius, nor mention his name. He says, the man... Enough said. And then, the Gentiles are admitted to the church. But the church in Jerusalem forgets about it. You know, there's an isolated case in Caesarea along the coast. And then in 46, Paul and Silas, no, pardon me, Paul and Barnabas, are sent out by the Holy Spirit, blessed by the church in Antioch, to go to Cyprus, and then to the mainland, to Asia Minor, preach the gospel. They go from Pisidian Antioch, in the center of Asia Minor, then they go on to Iconium, and from Iconium they go on to Lystra and Derby, and Lystra and Derby are Gentile churches. And then Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch and Syria. 
and the report. What the Lord God has done through us. And then in Antioch, Syria, there are Pharisees who say, no, these people may not enter the church. They first have to become Jews. And when they have been circumcised, then we will accept them. Paul says, not so. And then the Jerusalem council meets in the year 49. And in that year, the year 49, it is not only Paul who speaks, it is also Peter who speaks, and it is also James, the half-brother of Jesus, who speaks. And they came to an agreement saying, Gentiles do not have to live up to the Mosaic law as we do, the Jews. All they have to do is abstain from food items, three, and from immorality. And that's it. And here the door is open to the Gentiles. Now put it in perspective. Here James, the half-brother of Jesus, head of the church in Jerusalem, is taking the place of Peter. Going back to chapter 12 in the book of Acts, Peter is in prison. The angel comes and releases him. He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to open the door. She recognizes Peter's voice. The Christians are upstairs. They're praying for the release of Peter. <laughs> and then she rushes upstairs without opening the door. Peter is here. Oh, no, can be. And then they open the door. Yes, there's Peter. And then we read, and Peter left and went to another place. Roman Catholics know exactly where he went to. Rome. We're not all that sure. And he went to Rome right away. But James is appointed by Peter to take his place. And what does James do? He writes a letter to the church that is scattered. He talks about the twelve tribes of Israel scattered and they receive this epistle written for Jewish Christians not for Gentile Christians. There is not a trace in the entire epistle that speaks about Gentile Christians. So we are very comfortable in saying James wrote in the year 45. Okay? Is this an epistle? <laughs> it's a very, very simple question, and the answer is, of course it is an epistle. Can't you see how he begins? He says, James, there is the man's name. And then he continues, and he says, A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can criticize him and say, well, why didn't you say James, head of the church in Jerusalem, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus? Now, we would have known. No, James is saying, I will not put myself on a pedestal. I'm only a servant. I'm a servant of God. And I will not say I'm a half-brother of Jesus. I will say I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like you and I are servants. To the twelve tribes 
scattered among the nations. Greetings. And there's the address. And there's the salutation. Greetings. But is it really an epistle? Because look at the ending. I'm talking about verse 20 of chapter 5. Beginning to read at verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Stop. As if somebody pulled the plug. Stop. And there is no salutation, no greeting at the end, no benediction, no grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, nothing. What I would like to say is that the epistle really is made up of two sermons. The first two chapters on faith, that's the subject, consist of 53 verses. And the last three chapters, that is 3, 4, and 5, consist of 55 verses. And that really has a topic of sin. So there are two sermons. And James may very well have been the preacher. And putting these two sermons together, he fashioned what is now the epistle of James. Now, there is a probability that he addressed the church. Open your Bible and turn with me to chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor sh man in shabby clothes also comes in. Now, it may surprise you that the Greek in chapter 2, verse 2, reads as follows. If someone comes into your synagogue, soon I'll go again into your synagogue. well dressed with a ring on his finger and he enters and there is also a poor man and so on. He enters the synagogue. Not the, the church, ecclesia, the synagogue that points to an early date when there was still <coughs> the interchange of the word synagogue, synagogue, and ecclesia. You find the word ecclesia in chapter 5. Is anyone among you sick? Call for the elders of the church, ecclesia. But now we have the word synagogue. And I would submit to you that as the decades continued, the sharp division between Judaism and Christianity became pronounced so that in Judaism only the word synagogue was used and in the church 
the word ecclesia. And especially at the year, on the year or after the year 70, when the temple was destroyed, the people were banished from resettling the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding it, and were driven out without the priesthood. Then, in the book of Revelation, you read about the church in Smyrna. You read about the synagogue of Satan. Why the synagogue of Satan? Because these Jewish people in Smyrna were dead set against the Christians, filled with hatred. Okay, what else can we say about the epistle of James? First of all, stylistic characteristics. James writes excellent Greek, maybe not quite the same Greek as you find in Hebrews, but it is good Greek. It compares favorably with the best in the New Testament. But there is a distinct Hebraic coloring. And this comes out in Hebraic parallelism. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1 and 10a. There you have the parallel. Read it with me, will you? 9, verse 9 of chapter 1. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. They have parallelism. And you find that a number of times. Jot down these references, will you? I'll go slowly enough to, for you to put them down. Parallelism in 1 verse 15, verse 17, verses 19 through 20, and 22 through 23. 2 verse 22, 4 verse 7, and 10. Another characteristic, stylistic characteristic, is the use of imperatives. By one count, there are 54 occurrences of the imperative, the command. The author communicates his message effectively with numerous examples and comparisons taken from nature and human life. <clears throat> James was an outdoorsman. He knew nature. He talks about wind and waves. He talks about the rising sun and the scorching heat. He talks about the plant and its blossom. Chapter 1, verse 19, he talks about heavenly lights and shifting shadows. At the end of the chapter, he talks about a look in the mirror and the taming of the tongue. And last, a last stylistic characteristic is the repetition of verbs and nouns. I'll give you one example and go with me to chapter 1, 13 through 15. 
chapter 1, verse 13. I read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. These are the stylistic characteristics. And we move on to the cultural characteristics. If, as I have been saying, the epistle was written to Jewish people, then do we have any evidence that Jewish people are addressed? And the answer is yes. The readers are thoroughly acquainted with names taken from Old Testament history. Here are the names. Jot them down. There are five of them. Abraham. Isaac. Rahab. All in chapter 2. Job. Chapter 4. Elijah. Chapter 5. Also, throughout the epistle, James alludes to all three parts of the Old Testament canon. He talks about the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature. Well, what about the law? Well, you find it in 2 verse 10. Actually, I should back up a little bit. Go to 2.9.8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Okay, then you have a reference to the prophets in 5 verse 10. And 11. In 5, five verse 10, Brothers, as, a, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here's the wisdom literature. As you know, we consider blessed Those who have persevered, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. These references indicate that the Old Testament was a book of authority for the author and the readers. The Old Testament was basic. James and the readers are members of Israel as a nation to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. They also inherit the kingdom to verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world but rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? And next, they call Abraham their father. 
2 verse 21, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And last, then I'll stop. And that is in chapter 5. And I refer you to verse 7. Be patient, then brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn. Notice the word autumn and spring rains. When the NIV came off the press, New Testament in 1972, it read, For the fall and spring rains. And the people in Great Britain said, Is this called the New International? Or is it the New American Version? Why? Well, we don't say fall. We say autumn with an N at the end. Right? And so they put it in. And now you have it. The New International the recipients of the epistle. Already I pointed out to you that Jewish people were the recipients because James addresses his epistle to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. 1 verse 1. The designation twelve tribes is a biblical reference to Israel. You find it in the Old Testament in Exodus 24, verse 4. And in the New Testament, you find it repeatedly. I will only give you one text, and that is Matthew 19, verse 28. There are many others. But this term, the twelve tribes of Israel, should be understood figuratively, not literally. Because not all the twelve tribes returned. British Israelism, if it is still alive, teaches, tongue-in-cheek, that the tribe of Dan settled in Denmark. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> okay. I tried. I tried. James addresses representatives of the people of Israel, figuratively called the twelve tribes, now called the new Israel, because of Christ's work. James addresses believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, 2 verse 1. And they are scattered among the nations, Jewish Christians, having been driven out of the city of Jerusalem and going as far north as Antioch and as Cyprus. Turn with me a moment to chapter 8 of the book of Acts, chapter 8. And I read verse 1b. On that day, 
of Stephen's death, on that day a great persecution broke out against, against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now turn with me to chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Lebanon, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, North Africa, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now let's work with dates once more. Jesus ascended in the year 30. In the year 35, Paul was converted. In the year 38, he went back to Jerusalem. And then he was put aboard and went to the city, his hometown of Tarsus, the southeast corner of Turkey or Asia Minor. And then in about the year 41, Barnabas was sent to Antioch in Syria because Barnabas was the man of encouragement. He brought people together. Barnabas was born on the island of Cyprus. His native language was Greek. It was Barnabas who could bring Greek-speaking Christians and Jewish Christians together in one church. And so he did excellent work in the church in Antioch. Continue reading Acts chapter 11. And the writer, Luke, even says, Barnabas was a good man, full of faith and wisdom. Now, it could very well be, and this is my guess by reading the book of Acts, it may very well be that Luke was converted through the ministry of Barnabas. And then Barnabas had his hands full and then he asked Paul to come. And now we read chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. I would suggest to you that about six Years have gone by since the great persecution. Notice the word great is used, not just persecution, the great persecution in connection with Stephen. And they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And those people driven from the city of Jerusalem are now in dire straits physically, spiritually, and even economically when you read James chapter 5. Okay, the recipients of this epistle are Jews. I already pointed this out to you 
by looking at chapter 2, verse 2, where you find the word synagogue in the Greek. Now also look at chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. And may I have the NASB and our faithful representative, Sunday, please. Four, verse 4. Oh, hold on. That's good enough. Did you hear it? You adulteresses. Plural. Feminine. At that. You adulteresses. The NIV, excuse me, puts it this way. You adulterous people. <laughs> well, this is a bland. No, the Greek has a feminine noun in the plural. Why? Because the writer is thinking of the major prophets, prophets, and I'm talking now about Isaiah. I'm talking especially about Jeremiah. Jeremiah calls Judah and Israel adulteresses. That's what he is referring to, the people of Israel of either the two tribes or the ten tribes, they are adulteresses. Continuing, look at 5 verse 4. Uh, Sunday, please, once more, please. Behold, the pain of the laborers who made your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvest thing has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. The Lord Sabaoth. Remember Martin Luther's hymn? Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same and he shall win the battle. Sabaoth. A Hebrew term. And for those of you that know a little bit about Hebrew, yes? The word Sabaoth in transliteration ends in a theta. And there is no such a word in Greek that ends in a theta. Sabbath. Typical Jewish. Transliterated into Greek. Well, continuing. By the way, the NIV has Lord Almighty. I still like that word Sabbath. Five verse four. Five verse four. Next. They call the elders of the church to visit and pray with the sick. 5 verse 14. And the all elders are presbuteroi and not episcopoi. Now really, you don't have to make much of it, but here it is. Hear the word. Presbyteroi, from which we have the word Presbyterian, can't you see? We are scriptural, okay. <laughs> well, yes, but what about Episcopus? And transliterated, here it is. You can make that a C if you wish. Episcopus, and you have S. Episcopalian. This is the word for elders, and this is the word for elders. See? Now, let me help you along a little bit 
with this. Put a C here again. So, good. Now, this is an ending, and we usually drop endings. And this is the beginning, we drop the ending. And that's a P, and notice, that's really the fallen B. See? The end of P should be here. That's B. And now we make this an H, and they add the word bishop. So Episcopalians are bishop people. Good. My point is, getting back to where I should be, my point is that the word presbuteroi, elders is used, not episcopoi, which Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, overseers. If any one of you wants to be an overseer, an episcopos is the word. Why? Because in this Jewish setting, the word elder is relevant. All throughout the Old Testament, you have the elders of Israel. The Jews, addressed by James, are Christians. were scattered about throughout the, may we call it the Levant, that is, the nations around the Mediterranean. There is no evidence whatsoever that he addressed Gentile Christians, all Jewish Christians. Now, who wrote the epistle? The author is James. There are a number of James, and I'll list them for you one by one. One is James, the son of Zebedee. But James, the son of Zebedee, was killed in the spring of the year 44, probably in the month of March. How do we know so? Where do you get the evidence? <laughs> well, you find it in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. Have a quick look at 12, chapter 12, the book of Acts. And you read about Peter being in jail. King Herod Agrippa I, and I mentioned this morning that he was a friend, a close friend of the emperor. King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, mind you, in the month of April, beginning of April. And then where do you get the year 44 from? Well, now go to the end of the chapter and you read in verse 19b, then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Continuing, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. 
immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to increase and spread. We read here about representatives of Tyre and Sidon coming to Herod Agrippa I, wanting to buy wheat, the food supply. This then is the end of the harvest season, end of July. And then we read, on the appointed day, and that most likely is the 1st of August, You say, how do you know all this? Because Josephus tells us the same story about Herod Agrippa I and how he was eaten by worms and five days later he died. And he gives us a date, 44. And he also indicates the day It was the emperor's birthday, the 1st of August. Now, I'm not trying to make this up, but the Romans only had a year of 10 months. And then Julius Caesar came around and said, well, (laughs) I'll change that. I'll have the month of July. And then Augustus came around and he said, well, I want to have one too. And so he had the month of Now, you think that I'm trying to be funny. I'm not. I'm speaking truth and lying not. Because the word of September is the seventh month. October, October, the eighth month. November, ninth month. December, December, the tenth month. And two months have been introduced by the Roman emperors. And so on the first of August, King Herod, wanting to please the emperor, had this festive occasion. We can date it almost to the day. Okay, let's move on. James is out because he died, beheaded by Herod Agrippa I. Number two, James, the son of Alphaeus, mentioned in the list of the apostles. But honestly, we don't know a thing about James, the son of Alphaeus. And if he had written the epistle, he would have said, James, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you don't find this. Next, we have James, the younger, mentioned in Mark 15, verse 40. And again, we don't know a thing about James the Younger. Number four. We have James, the father of Judas, also an apostle. I'm not talking about Judas Iscariot, by the way. Again, we don't know a thing about James, the father of Judas. And last, we have James, the half-brother of Jesus. And that's the man who wrote this epistle. His name is mentioned in Acts chapter 12 when Peter, released from prison, goes to another place and he appoints James to be a successor. 
Now, there are objections to James being the author of this epistle. The first objection is, a fisherman of Galilee, unschooled, didn't go to college, university, didn't go to seminary, he didn't go to Jerusalem to learn. An unschooled fisherman could not speak and write Greek this well. <coughs> well, hold on a moment, will you? Not so fast with your criticism. Would you know that Isaiah, in chapter 9 of his prophecy, and he wrote this 700 years before Christ. Open your Bibles now and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Well known to you because of the verses you always read and hear at Christmas time. You read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and on and on. But I'm not interested in that right now. I'm interested in the introduction. And I'm referring now to verses 1 and 2. Read with me, will you? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. And when the forces of Alexander the Great came into Palestine, about 335 and those forget the exact number and name or date. But let us say about 335, he introduced the people to Greek language and culture. And then the Romans came and they also used Greek because it was the lingua franca of the Middle East. So we're not talking about Jerusalem where everyone happened to be Jewish. We are talking about Galilee of the nations where Greek was spoken. And I would say that Jesus knew Greek. We read about this. In John chapter 12, when the Greeks come to Jesus and they contact first Andrew and then Philip, and Andrew and Philip take the Greeks to Jesus. And I'm sure that Jesus spoke Greek. Oh, I get a little, little bit perturbed at times. You know, you have to sort of suppress that feeling of anger. We're not supposed to be angry. But here is this liberal scholar of Chicago Divinity School, not quite known as bedrock conservatism. I'm talking about Norman Perrin, who wrote in public, mind you, for all to read, Quote, Jesus may have known a few Greek words, but it is doubtful whether he could read or write. End of quote. What? You mean to say that Jesus, who was quoting Scripture, teaching the Old Testament, was unable to read and write? 
unbelievable. But you have to be a liberal. <laughs> I continue. In my defense for James, defense of James, John Bunyan, Bedford, England, a cobbler, no education, imprisoned, writing Pilgrim's Progress, still in print today, after all these centuries. It's a classical work. You mean to say that James, the brother of Jesus, could not write? I'm sorry. If you're so negative, I'd like to be positive and say yes, he could write. Also notice that James calls himself a servant, not a brother of Jesus. He could easily have put himself on the pedestal. He doesn't do so. He says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. A word about language. Do we find anything in the epistle which can be linked up with the speech of James delivered at the Jerusalem Council and found in chapter 15 of the book of Acts? Chapter 15, it is James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, who is giving a speech on the floor of, may I call it the General Assembly? Good. What does he say? And I'm reading now verse 13. Acts 15, 13. Brothers, he says, listen to me. And then he continues. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And then he quotes a lengthy quotation from Amos 9, verse 11 and 12. And then he comes to the end of his speech in which he says, the Gentiles are advised to refrain from, and here it is, food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, from blood. And then, there is a letter addressed to the churches in Asia Minor, the Gentile churches. A letter written by James. And here we have some of the same language. We read, and I'm reading now verse 23, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Notice you have the same thing in this epistle. Brothers, listen to me. Greetings. And there are a few other places. So we can see some similarity. Well, what about the external evidence? We have now looked at the internal evidence. 
saying, yes, James wrote the epistle. The external evidence, and I refer you to Eusebius, the church historian of the year 325 in Alexandria, Egypt, and he quotes Hegesippus. Let me put the name on the board for you. Here it is. Hegesippus probably was born about the year 110. And we have a few fragments of his writings in Eusebius. Eusebius quotes Hegesippus when he relates that James, quote, here's the exact quote, used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of, of Christ, of God. End of quote. Camel need James because of his prayers. Nevertheless, this pious man known as James the Just met a violent death and Josephus gives us the details. Now, you know about Governor Felix? He kept Paul in prison for two years because he wanted to see his palm greased and Paul said, no, 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 no. I'd rather stay in prison. By the way, may I just go on off on a tangent for a moment? Why? Why? Did the Lord put Paul in prison in Caesarea for two whole years, sitting there languishing, wanting to be free and to continue his missionary journeys? Excuse me, Lord, didn't you make a mistake? No, not at all. See, in the Lord's providence, he puts Paul in prison in Caesarea along the coast of Israel. And as I told you yesterday, he was completely dependent on friends and acquaintances to bring him food and drink and clothes and a toothbrush, all that. Now, elders came from Galilee with a problem. Paul, how do you solve well, now, this is how you do it. People came from Samaria. And Paul, will you help us in regard to... Now, this is how you do it. And all along, throughout Israel, people would come to Paul. And Paul was a stabilizing influence. And then he has another two years in prison in a rented house in Rome. And as I explained to you the other day, yesterday... Look, from Rome he sent forth missionaries to the ends of the world. The Lord doesn't make mistakes. You and I do, but God never. Okay, I was talking about James, who met a violent death. First you have Felix, he was uh, followed by Festus, not Gunsmoke, Gephestus, and after Festus, who died in office, by the way, very 
unexpectedly. And then Albinus came. He was next. Governor Albinus. And that happened in the year 63. You know, they didn't have email in those days. When Festus died in office in 62, then this news had to be brought to Rome and it took weeks before it came to the emperor. And then the emperor had to choose a man and he had to get ready and then finally he would come and take his place in the governor's mansion in Caesarea. And then he would come to Jerusalem. So we are now talking about the year 63. At that time, there was a young high priest by the name of Ananus. Young and inexperienced. And he arrested James the Just. And he had James the Just put on the roof, the flat roof of the temple and told his men to knock him down. And James fell, still lived. And Josephus tells us that the laundry man with the club came and clubbed him to death. So now we know, thanks to Josephus, when this happened in the year 63. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.